Welcome, everyone, to the A-10 Talk podcast, our weekly roundup of all things Atlantic 10 basketball. Thomas Silo joined here by Kaylee Godek, Daniel Frank, and making his A-10 Talk podcast debut, it's the Baz Machine, William Bazone. Baz, welcome to the A-10 Talk podcast. It is so exciting to have you here. And by the way, just for full disclosure, Baz is the guy who runs Loyola Chicago Barstool. So, Will, welcome. You get a little round of applause here as as part of tradition here at A10 Talk. We're so excited to have you expanding our loyal Chicago coverage. So we had or have a wild week here in the Atlantic 10 right now as of this recording on Friday night. Big night in the Big Five. A10 had a big Wednesday and the Friday A10 is not going so hot. So we're going to touch on all of that and we'll get to the women's side. Talk about Davidson, St. Joe's, all of those teams, Rhode Island emerging to the top but let's kick it off here the big night in the big five and i know we're gonna get to saint joe's villanova we will get to that i promise you we have to start with temple versus LaSalle, a triple overtime game that saw temple walk away with the victory but it was the most entertaining of games and probably the best game on the wednesday night a 10 slate 106.99 in favor of the owls Khalil Brantley and Jameer Brickus, 41 and 29, respectively. Let's open up the discussion now. This will be an open forum discussion, whoever would like to start. What are our thoughts after watching that game, watching LaSalle go to -to toe-to-toe against Temple? What have we learned about this Explorer team? Well, I just first want to start off that three that tied the game at the end of regulation had the Kale Beers classic pow that was probably heard around the world i will just say that um that was probably one of the most enthusiastic lasalle games i have watched i'm not quite saying lasalle is legit yet but um considering that they went into triple overtime without um anwar gill as he fouled out in the middle of regulation uh that says a lot that they like can rely on both um Khalil Brantley and also Jameer Brinkus. Khalil Brantley played the entirety of the game, start to finish, 55 minutes on the night, um, scoring 29 points. But what's actually a little more impressive is Jameer Brinkus with 41 points on the night, actually now is the highest scorer like in a big five game, which is a cool thing. I I saw um that a, a high scoring game like that from one player hasn't happened in a long time in a big five classic game. And Honestly, this looked like LaSalle and Temple were going at it like they were still in the A-10, um, with Temple having been in the A-10 before. Um, it just definitely felt like that, like one of those like A-10 tourney games where it's like a rivalry one where it's like a URI UMass matchup or even like a GW George Mason matchup as Daniel can relate to, uh, Tom Thomas, you can relate to uh, Fordham versus St. Bonaventure with that kind of rivalry. So it kind of just felt like a classic A-10 playoff game like Temple had never left is current, is how I would say. And they even said on the broadcast, too, that the last time Temple had a triple overtime game was, in the words of the broadcasters, back in the old Atlantic 10 days, <laughs> which, boy, did that make me feel old as they're referring to the Atlantic <laughs> 10 days as long ago. Well, I will just also say this. I, I, I listened to what they said. Their last triple overtime game they had, I believe, was actually against UMass. That is, that is correct. 
back back against when it was the John Cheney, John Calipari game, uh, like days. And honestly, those are like the big old rivalry days where UMass and Temple were a huge thing. So honestly, like it felt like it was an A10 game. And maybe UMass will get to see Temple later this month. We don't know in the Diamond Head Classic. So honestly, Temple definitely gave some A10 vibes on Wednesday. Yeah, it was an exciting game, KG. I know you touched on Brickus and Brantley. Um, you know, I think they're both really great players, but it's it's tough because, you know, Fran Dunphy's really working with a thin lineup. He doesn't really have a lot to work with. Um, again, they can keep him in games, but I don't think they can do it all. As you mentioned, um, it was Brickus that played all 55, Brantley pay- played 53, um, and they were the only two players that night in double figures. So that's hard. I mean, you cannot rely on those guys to play – as much as they do and win every game. So I think you need more inside scoring and you, you just need, you just need some defensive help. I mean, their unit, I don't think is that strong yet. I don't think they have a great interior presence personally, the rebounding and blocking needs to improve a little bit. Fouling also needs to come down if they want to remain more competitive, because again, when you're only going eight deep, you know, you can't be putting up 19 personal fouls a game. I think that's quite high. I think that's got to come down, but I think again, Fran Dunphy, as you guys kind of talked about last week, he's getting the most out of his group and they're doing the little things right. Um, Ball security is key for them. 10 turnovers a game is 44th lowest in the NCAA. Turnover rate is actually within the top 40. They are 36th right now with 12.4%. So honestly, I I sort of wonder because they haven't really had any great opponents yet. The Temple game was probably their best one. Uh, Is it better to be lucky than good? Because they are currently in the top 20 in Ken Palm's luck rating. And might I also add, they also have a great second half fuel. 40.7 second half points is 82nd in D1. Um, Don't know if you guys have any other thoughts on that, but I think that's sort of my interpretation of this LaSalle team. They played really well, but again, it can't be Brickers and Brantley doing everything if they want to be competitive. So preseason, I was higher, I think, than most were on the Explorers. I ended up putting them 10th in my, my power rankings. And a lot of people kind of looked at the roster and they go, well, it's just Brantley and Brickus. And then what? Right. Rokish, Yoktus. I, I don't I, I, I the broadcasts, the ones that I listen to, they say his name about seven different times. So I'm just going with Rokus Yotus, which is what they were saying the other night. It's him in the middle. And then Deshaun Shepard will run in for a dunk. Or you've got other guys like Tundi Fasasi, who's I think going to be a good player. He can shoot the ball, but then he doesn't want to shoot the ball. He can drive the lane, but he can't finish through contact. He's this weird wing freshman who I know that they really like, but again, he's he's too raw of a, of a reliant inside factor. And I think if LaSalle still had the Drame twins and they still had Josh Nickelberry, I probably would have thought this was at least a top six team without question. You put that rotation together. You have Fran Dunphy, who's done this for a long time. And in all honesty, if you go look at even his Temple teams, if you want to go back to his Penn teams, he's had so many great shooting guards, right? They can go off the bounce. They can shoot the three. They protect the ball. They don't turn the thing over. And as Baz mentioned, they're they're 32nd right now on Ken Palm in turnover percentage, which is really, really good. So they don't really turn the thing over much. That being said, they're extremely selective with their offensive shots. They don't like to take anything that's too difficult They don't want to force anything that's bad, even if a shot clock's winding down, because they'll keep moving that ball until they find the best available shot. Now, you get 30 seconds in college. This isn't the NBA, 
but that ball movement has to be a little bit more crisper and there's got to be more opportunities to put guys in spots where they're going to get an open jumper early in the shot clock or you can score on the fast break or you can bring the ball down off a stop, stop for a second, and then maybe go to the basket and draw a foul. There's things like that that need to happen. And they shot 35 free throws, 74% as a team. They hit 26 of them, which is key. That being said, the LaSalle Explorers, I mean, they've got a nice little team. I don't think they're going to get high, any higher than I would say 10th or 9th, but there are limitations with this roster, Baz, as you pointed out, is there's a lot of things that they need. And Daniel, I'll pass this to you. I think player development with Fran Dunphy, that's his big thing, but it's also he needs more stuff to be able to do that. And I think right now it's a little, a little limited in terms of, him really working that magic. Oh, for sure. I mean, LaSalle is, is a team that, I mean, I think this has been a big complaint of theirs for a while is that they've always been able to find diamonds in the rough. They'll, they'll get recruits of guys that they had maybe one guy you've heard of on the roster and then the rest of the roster, you're like, who who is this we're playing? And, you know, with, with them being able to develop talent moving forward, I think it's important that they... I don't know. LaSalle's always so weird because they always are like the, the weird team that you can like count on for an upset in conference play. They're always going to beat the top team in the conference, but they never are able to put all of the pieces together. And Fran Dunphy probably has the ability to better than most be able to put all the puzzle pieces together with this roster and get the most out of what he has. Um, I know, you know, Rothstein's phrase is Mark Schmidt more with uh, more with less. I feel like you can kind of say that with Dumpy a little bit, too. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this roster. There's certainly more momentum in LaSalle, like, the, the energy around the program of LaSalle than we've probably seen in 10 years. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, if anyone can do it, it, it will it would be Dumpy. Yeah, and I think they look great so far. I mean, look, I put them ninth last week. It might be a little generous. They haven't really had anything exciting on the schedule. I mean, they did lose to Duke by, like, less than 35, so I guess we'll give them, like, a mountain for that, like a little pat on the back. Um, But, yeah, I think this was really their closest game, their best game. And, you know, if they want to hover around ninth or tenth in the conference, they're going to have to show me a little bit more. But um, for right now, I'm happy with what Fran Dunphy's doing with his group. They're really looking okay, despite all the challenges they're having. I would like yeah, well, to mention real fast, Kaylee, and then I'll let you go. So they, they played Temple, and their next game is against Penn. So I feel like we should dub this the the Dunphy Classic here because it's all three <laughs> schools that he coached at or is coaching at. So let's let's just call that as it is. Yeah, no, one thing I actually did want to mention kind of relating to all of this is, yeah, he coached at uh, Temple. When he coached at Temple, I believe the current head coach play or an assistant or somebody on the like coaching staff for Temple played under Dumpy. I thought I heard that on that would be yeah, Khalif Wyatt. Yep. So that is actually like an interesting thing I wanted to mention. Like considering Temple did beat Dunphy and LaSalle, but I mean, honestly, the Temple has a first year head coach, like a first year head coach at Temple right now. So they're kind of going through a little bit of a rebuild, but considering four and two on the season, that's actually pretty decent. So granted, I don't know the entirety of like who they've beaten, who they've lost, all of that, but that's really not a bad record for a first year uh, head coach at a program compared to some of the other ones I have seen right now. So I'll get into that a little later. 
I think we've had a rough going here with some of the rookie head coaches uh, and most of college basketball because everyone's all excited about the portal and you can stay old the entire time and you can get grad students and they'll mold and they'll do this and that. But it all comes down to as well as can you develop your guys and can you get your guys to fit? I think we see that in a lot of different teams. I think one team that we really see that in who's struggled to put the pieces together, and this is now year five, is St. Joseph's. And St. Joseph's just beat Villanova. They they beat him good, 78-65. Lynn Greer, uh, uh, he he was he was his dad in this game. He looked exactly like his old man. He was going to the basket, hitting jumpers, creating for others. Eric Reynolds, 24 points, absolute superstar. Might honestly be the best guard in all of the mid-major ranks. And it, it may not even be close with his ability to score the basketball. But off the bench, how about Xavier Brown, the freshman? 16 points on six of nine shooting to give Joes an enormous boost in this big-time win over Villanova at the Finn, may I add. And this Villanova team may be the most talented that we've seen in a long time. But let's also acknowledge the fact that this, this is Kyle Neptune. This isn't Jay Wright. So you have to kind of wonder... You know, how much how much does beating Villanova from the outside world look? I know that the big five, it's all these local animosities and all this stuff. But from the outside looking in, how impressive is it beating a Villanova team led by Kyle Neptune? And I think the other one we're going to have this in a little bit is is the state of the St. Joe's team. But let's open up the discussion again about what this win means. Baz, let's lead let's lead off with you. Absolutely, Thomas. I think, as you just mentioned, I I. I don't know. Like there's been the coaching change. Is it the same Villanova team? I, I, I don't think that matters because I mean, Hey, they only lost by eight to Kentucky just last week. So I think they've shown their ability to compete in close games. I think they've really developed their players really well. As you mentioned, I put them at eighth last week, but I think they've made a really clear argument for moving up, especially with this win. Um, again, we talked about Eric Reynolds just a second ago. I, he might not be the best guard or might not only be the best guard in the mid majors right now, but I think he could be a top candidate for a 10 player of the year. If he keeps this up, I really do. Um, he's shooting 44.3 from deep. That's really, really good. Um, I think that's within the top 50 in um, all of division one. But I think one of the biggest things that makes this Hawks team pretty good actually is they're much better on both sides of the ball instead of just being an offensively minded team right now. They're 42nd in Ken Palm for just a defense and their opponent shooting percentage is 37.7%, which is 17th lowest in D1. And they get off to hot starts. I think that's really important. They're fourth in D1 right now with 11.4 made three-point three field goals per game. And they're third in attempts with 31. So they'll burn you early. So you got to get a whole, you know, put the kibosh on them. But I think the biggest thing is, is again, like I said, a hot start. They're outscoring opponents by a seven and a half point margin in the first half. So yeah, they look really good. They're developing a nice rotation. I think in the Villanova game, they only played eight players. So if they can really just keep that group gelled and together, even if they got to go one or two deeper on the bench, I think they're going to be a pretty solid team uh, come come conference play. Well, I just want to point a few things out quickly. I know, I believe St. Joseph was without one of their starting players, so they did have to play with their starting lineup a little bit. I think it was, I did hear. But this is actually kind of a little bit of a good, like, 
way of eight, like just A10 in general, looking back in on two former A10 people in this, Kyle Neptune at Fordham, as well as former Richmond forward, Tyler Burton. Tyler Burton has been on and off for this Villanova team, I've noticed in some of the games I've watched. St. Joe's held Tyler Burton to only 15 points. May I just point out Tyler Burton against UMass in the playoffs last year for the conference? He scored almost the same amount of points as UMass I won. I know I'm probably exaggerating a little bit, but he scored a lot in that game. Like, he has Villanova is a like a power six school. UMass is just an A10 mid-major. That's a high mid, like a higher mid-major. But honestly, kind of seeing the jump up, like it's hit or miss on when Burton's gonna play well. And you never know, especially when it's a transfer up, you never know like how they're going to be like a good fit in, like at a higher program in a power six school, as well as you don't know, like if they're going to like be like a huge contributor in minutes or contributor in other factors. So, I mean, the fact that St. Joe's did a pretty good job scouting him and held him to only five points. I'll say that is a huge win because I feel like if Tyler Burton had scored a little more, this game would have been closer. But I do just want to point out, this was the first win for St. Joe's at Villanova since, I believe, twenty uh, 2003. So that is a 20-year streak of not being able to beat Villanova at Villanova. The thing that stands out to me the most that I, I can't help but wonder is what is the narrative around this St. Joe's team if they erase that Texas A&M Commerce loss or whatever the hell the team was? Like, because it, you you erase that from that loss from the resume, they're what six seven and one with their only loss being an overtime loss to Kentucky. Like I know that we are very skeptical about St. Joe's and very justifiably so, given what Billy Lang has showed us over the last several years. But if you just erase the Commerce loss, which I realize we can't do, but like what would the narrative be about this team right now? And I think St. Joe's still has time to prove. Hey, no, like we actually are a, a contender for a double buy here in the A-10. They've got Temple coming up in the championship game of the Big Five. Um, they've got American, which they may as well beat. Um, Princeton, who is on a very hot streak to start this year. Iona, I know, is not the same as without Rick Pitino, but still a respectable mid-major. And then they finish off with a road game at College of Charleston, which could end up being a quad one, quad two game for the Hawks. Um, and then another game against Loyola, Maryland before they hit the conference play. But there's a couple, there's at least one or two games that'll be quad one, quad twos in there for, and I'm I'm not talking about NCAA tournament at large or St. Joe's. That, that's not the conversation I'm, I'm having, but just in terms of evaluating this team, where we think they are heading into conference play, they still have time to prove to us that they are not just a flash of hand team, which is what I think Billy Lang has been accused of in the past is when they have had wins, it's like, okay, yeah, yeah you won one game. Cool. But like, can you prolong, can you do that over a, a consistent period of time? The big problem that, that Billy Lang has had, and, and most of it you can attribute to injuries, is he runs he's run his team into the ground with some of his in-game decisions, right? I think we can all agree that in the past, there have been decisions that Billy Lang has made in-game where you're just scratching your head, wondering what was the play here, right? I think now that he's seemingly overcome the injury bug and... They have probably the most talented team since the last Martelli A-10 winning team. This St. Joe's, they are a legitimate threat 
to not only win the double buy or a double buy spot, they could genuinely go to the championship game of this conference. They have enough offensive firepower to do it. They have enough talent to do it. They have all the things that you would want from a basketball team. They've got a big guy in Sandico, Rasheer Fleming, Anthony Finkley's a good wing. They've got an enormous amount of guards who can all score and hit the three. They can drive, they can distribute. And then they got better defensively, as Baz pointed out. I think this Billy Lang St. Joe's team, there's no question that this is his best team. And there may be no question, again, that this may be the best team that they've had in eight, seven or eight seasons. I think if they don't win it this year with Reynolds exploding to what he is right now, because let's 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 not ignore what could be an elephant in the room two months from now. Eric Reynolds could hit the transfer portal and go to a high major. He honestly could, because that's how this stuff works now. If he's going to get a better NIL deal somewhere else, he'll pack it up and he'll head off to wherever that may be. It could be it, it could be at Villanova. Kyle Neptune may, may just poach a guy that kills him in a game. He did it with Tyler Burton technically because when he played Richmond, Burton kind of kicked. Can I curse on this? I don't remember if I can. No, you can't. He kicked the crap out of him at Fordham. And Neptune's like, yeah, we're going to bring him in, right? That's, it, it could happen. Something like that could happen. You just never know. And Reynolds... As much as I'm sure Billy Lang again would love to keep him around, you have to you have to go for it at least this year. And if you get lucky, he comes back next year. Then I think they could be the favorite. But again, that is a discussion for a later date. But let's move along because we have uh, one thing I just want to mention quickly before yes. we move along. Mm-hmm. Uh, you typically three pointers can be your friend and can be your enemy. Um, in St. Joe's case, it was their friend making fourteen out of their 27 attempted threes. That is basically just over 50% of threes. If they had shot one more three, it would have been exactly at 50% if they had missed that three, theoretically. So 51.9% from the three-point arc that game. GW well, fans we, are having flashbacks. The 18th that South Carolina just dropped on us. <laughs> Sorry, GW, for that. My bad. <laughs> well, let's get to the Friday 10 slate. We, st- we do have to start. Again, I promise you we will go to the GW South Carolina game. But we have to touch, and this one I think is more painful for A10 fans than than they thought it was going to be. Is VCU losing to Norfolk State 63 to 60? Um I I have don't have many words right now to describe this VCU team. I didn't think they were gonna be some world beating top four team like they have been in the past. They completely turned the program over. They have a new style of play. They have a new coach. They only return Zeb Jackson, really, who played last year. And here they are. They just, they, they, it's, it's almost as if their offense was inebriated. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. They don't want to play deep. They don't, they, dudes don't want to show up to play defense. Okay. That's the first problem that I have. I think my second issue is just Max Shulga has to do everything and he can't do everything. I, he's awesome. He's an all-conference player as of now. He's he can't he can't go four of sixteen trying to score the basketball. And then you have to ask him to also do a lot of your work on the perimeter defensively. That's just not how this team is going to win. I know Zeb Jackson has looked good, but again, that that's two guys. There needs to be other guys that need to step up. 
and some of their role players are kind of all over the place. But KG, I think you've also made it a point for VCU is they they could fall out of the top six. They really could because that's that's the kind of season right now that it's looking like for these guys. Yeah, so kind of to talk about the like I didn't get a chance to watch this game unfortunately because I was busy watching some Friday 10 on our lovely women's basketball side which we'll get into in a little bit um but I do just want to mention this kind of going to the John Ross scene um Twitter VCU loses a bye game to Norfolk, Norfolk State the epitome of brutality it's right there um Honestly, VCU hasn't really had many impressive games, in my opinion. The only game that I found really impressive was the win over former head coach Mike Rhodes. Um, so just want to touch on that quickly a little bit. Um, going Kind of jumping a little back into Feast Week, and I apologize for it, but kind of just want to touch base on this. So all of the VCU coaches, when they um, are under contract with VCU, they have an agreement in their contract where they have to do a home and home with them if they like leave in the middle of their contract or anything. So uh, Shaka Smart did that with Texas after he got hired there. Will Wade had started this when he did get hired at LSU, but unfortunately they weren't able to complete it after he got fired uh, due to other reasons. And then, they had this one already scheduled with Penn State for um, the 24-25 season. Um, so uh, they actually brought on to the air for that game, I believe, one of the like assistant ADs. And they said, yeah, so this is not going to be a part of like our home-and-home home agreement. This is just an added um, game against him. So basically, this is it was just a, like an interesting game. Um, Ace Baldwin had a decent showing. Um, I know one of the Penn State players had gotten hurt, but just to kind of see VCU actually beat Penn State was a little surprising. But then again, too, like I should be a surprise because both co- like both coaches have been coaching for a while, but it's their first year with both of their respective programs. So you can kind of understand that it's a little bit of like a rebuilding phase for VCU right now. And you're not going to like see them. I would say I'll say this now. You probably won't see them in a pillow fight but you will probably end up seeing the middle of the pack, which we haven't really seen in the A-10 in a long time. And honestly, though, what screams A-10 sicko more than a seventh place game at 1030 in the morning? I mean, that 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 to me was very much the epitome of just A-10 sickos. No, I, I caught the end of this VCU game tonight because um, I was, fortunately, for better or for worse, the GW game was very quick ending. Um, so I caught the end of the, the VCU game. V- VCU... I don't know. They had so many chances in this game. They they honestly were lucky that this was a three-point game in the end because it seemed like every time that they would try to make a second-half run, Norfolk State would push it right back to 10, and VC was right back trying to roll the boulder back up the mountain. And, I mean, the fact that they even had a, a, a last shot at the end because they were down like five, five or six within the last like 12 seconds, I think. The fact they even were fortunate enough to have a halfway decent look at a three to tie it is is kind of a miracle and honestly vc didn't deserve to be in that position um it's a very bizarre thing to see vcu looking this way we're so used to seeing vcu as the cream of the crop of the atlantic 10 we always hear the conversation about vcu and 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 dayton as well about are they going to the big east are they going here are they going there that's it's always the, the background noise you hear all the time 
But at the same time, it's like VCU has not exactly been the VCU that we've known them to be if you want to go back five years. Um, and you can say what you want about Mike Rhodes. It's all water under the bridge, I suppose, at this point, because there's nothing anyone can do about it at this point. But it's just a very weird look for VCU to be losing games like this. I think one of the biggest things that stands out to me for VCU, they kind of remind me a lot of Loyola's team last year in terms of like the way that they, not necessarily, just like if we look at them on paper, I mean, they just, they don't take a lot of shots right now. It's crazy. They are actually only taking around 50 shots a game, which is bottom three in all of division one. But by some miracle, their opponent's effective field goal percentage is 43.8, which is 26th. Opponent two-point percentage, 43%. Like, it's insane. They're only giving up five made threes a game. I mean, it's like they're not playing that bad. But again, where I think their issues kind of come in is, again, it's a new philosophy, a lot of new players coming in. Um, They turn the ball over a lot. Right now, their turnover rate is 19.5%. That's 340th. In Division One, and they also foul a lot. Eighteen personal fouls a game, kind of the same problem as LaSalle. Um, I just think you know they got to play cleaner if they want to really be back up in the upper echelon of teams. And just with their schedule coming up, they've really got to right the ship if they want to start. Like I said, be competitive come conference time. Well, their next game happens to be against Memphis, and they're going to be bringing Memphis into the Seagull Center. So there is some comfort level maybe they have a slimmer of hope to beat memphis i don't think that they're going to beat memphis let's let's be honest here but the norfolk state team is interesting because fordham played them in the virgin islands and they they kind of kicked the crap out of them they almost beat them by like 25 i think at one point they had a lead but they ended up winning 74 to 64 that being said vcu losing by three to them is i guess an indictment on the kind of season that they're probably in for because they're probably going to play some of these higher level teams and then they're going to sink down to the teams that they should just kick in the midsection because again this roster it's it's very it's a strange roster right i know that max shulga he's really good sean barristow is out with a foot injury there's no joe joe bamisil because this is why you don't transfer to four schools in four years so the ncaa won't let you play and that's his own doing i don't care what anybody says but i want to address the the people who think that they're going to be in the top four because ryan odom is this like myth mystical creature from outer space that is this all-powerful being and he brought in great players right yes he brought in good players and he's a good coach but when four or rather three of your main rotation guys are guys that were here last year that redshirted under Mike Rhodes or played sparingly, if that, and then the backup point guard who got no more than I think like 17 minutes a game last year, you're kind of in for it. And some of these other guys that VCU was all hyping up preseason, and I, I'm guilty of this too, but now looking back, hindsight obviously is 2020. Roosevelt Wheeler, we all thought was going to be some rim protector for them, and he had he played three minutes tonight he didn't even grab a rebound he turned the ball over once and he fouled somebody like you keep going down this list kune kune who is this grad transfer from cal now coming from cal their situation last year i don't think anyone expected too much of him seven minutes and he takes one shot and you accumulate one assist that's it that's all you got for your grad student is from from a power conference may i add 
again, it is Cal. They weren't good last year, but that's all you got from him. Michael Bell, who's their freshman, is playing better than him, and we didn't know anything about him coming in. So this VCU team, there's too many unknowns. There's too many guys that were overpromised and are very much underperforming. And again, it's a new philosophy, like Baz said. It's it. They're not the havoc defensive team that'll pressure you to death and you're going to get tired and they press you the whole whole game. That's not this team. It's a half-court style that's offensive heavy. They want to run in transition. They shoot a lot of threes. That's what they're going to do now with Ryan Odom. The, the Shaka tree is dead. It's dead. And the worst part about this too is, yes, they're trying to go a little bit more on the offensive end, but you still have to play defense. Like, like dudes don't want to show up to play defense. You're not going to win games that way. But they have a lot of rebuilding to do under Ryan Odom. But let's move along here to the George Washington South Carolina game where the Colo- or the Revs, excuse me, almost called them the Colonials, 89-67 South Carolina, an absolute shellacking down south. Daniel, I'll start with you since you are our split George Mason, George Washington insider. What are your opening thoughts on this game against the Patriots or for the Patriots, excuse me, or the revolutionaries? Come I'm on, sorry. man. Come I'm, on. It's 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 1014 on a Friday night. I'm tired. I had a long day. Please excuse my stupidity. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say that this is an overly shocking result here. I mean, I think GW fans coming into this game, we were excited about what we had seen from this team. But at the same time, you cannot do what GW did to South Carolina a year ago at the Smith Center and think that that's not going to sit in their memory for 365 days. I mean, GW, for all intents and purposes, beat this team by 40 points last year. I know the final score was 25, but that was because it was such a blowout for so long that there was so much garbage time. Um, And for all intents and purposes, GW just absolutely just took their lunch money last year. And to South Carolina's credit, they came prepared for this game. They start off the game on like an eight to one run. GW, I think, made one field goal before the first media timeout. James hit a stupid turnaround shot that somehow went in. And that was James Bishop's only field goal for like 20 minutes straight, if not 30. I mean, he ended up, what did James end up with? Like, I think he had like 15 points or something in the end. He had 14, yeah. But like, he had three points in the entire first half. And like, that's just not, that's not the James Bishop way. And I understand for GW that like, they got to figure out ways that like, we all know that James is going to be the focal point of everyone's scouting report. That That's a given. But for so much of this game, the team looked lifeless. And that's not what you expect when you're going on the road as a 6-1 and one team that is playing at a Power 5 school. You expect your guys to be ready to go from the jump. And the, the lack of energy was, was concerning for me. Max didn't look into this game. Um I mean, to be to the credit of some of the freshmen, Buchanan had a nice game. Trey Autry had a pretty good game. Um, you got some really encouraging con- contributions from the bench. Um, Hutchinson also had a good game. GLB hit some threes to stay in this game. They cut it to four a number of times. They had a good run out of halftime that I think was encouraging. And then all of a sudden, it was a 20-point game in the blink of an eye. And I th- think that was the most frustrating thing is 
it felt like every time GW showed a little bit of life, it just, they could not get stops. And I understand this is a very different Carolina team than we saw a year ago. I understand all those things. But overall, I think that the consensus was this was a disappointing performance from the Revs tonight. I mean, I just quickly pulled up the box score. I mean, you guys had the revolutionaries had um, four double digit players um, with Buchanan being the leading scorer with 18 points. James Bishop having 14. uh, Trey Autry with 13 and then. Okay, I'm, I apologize if I accidentally screwed up the first name. Jacoy Hutchinson with only 10, with 10 to round out your double-digit scorers. Like, you got to be able to see some, like, like bigger scoring from at Edwards because that, that definitely does it because he did definitely shine in uh, your games down against Ohio and all of those games during Feast Week. So I feel that, like, if – you go in with like low energy, that's definitely going to kill a team. Having seen it like from just the reporter side of it, as well as just also from having worked with a men's basketball team, like I've seen it on both sides going in with low energy. It sometimes it like it's okay to go in with low energy because you can pull off that one, but then there's times where you can't pull off like going in with low energy because that team's going to hand you your butt and it's not going to be a good game. And you can kind of see here. South Carolina's still undefeated. Um, and GW drops down to six and two. And this is year two of rebuild down in South Carolina after well, we got lovely co- coach Frank Martin up at UMass from South Carolina. So um very interesting to see that in year two, South Carolina's already undefeated in year two of this rebuild. But I feel that either way, like this was going to be a good game for the Revs and just a good game in general to watch. But again, like you can't foresee like a 25 point blowout from last season and then see it not happen again, like in a home and home series kind of deal. So you kind of have to expect it to happen, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, my brother goes to South Carolina and this morning I was kind of chirping him a little bit. I was like, Oh, they're going to go into colonial life. Oh, you know, I think they look really good this year. GW is going to do it. And then of course I, my whole family's texting me. They're like, um, did you watch that game? And I was like, yeah. Um, so I was definitely humbled a little bit um, and seeing the final box score, but um, look, I mean, the South Carolina team, give them credit. They played a really good game. Michi, bad news, Johnson, Cleveland legend um, from the East side. Uh, really just a great player coming off a career high against Notre Dame. He put up 29 Um Really good kid. I mean, they have a good team. The rebuild is going faster than expected. I don't know if they'll be as competitive in the SEC, but it's nice to see wins for them. But obviously for George Washington through their first, you know, eight games is averaging almost 85 points a game, which is top 20 in the NCAA right now. That's pretty impressive. And to see him only put up a a measly 67 points is a little bit humbling. James Bishop held under 20 points for the first time. And I can't even tell you how long it feels like, you know, he's just consistently scoring the ball. And it was kind of surprising not to see him uh, have a stronger performance, but it's early. They're looking a lot better than I I was one of the only people who picked GW to be first place last week. I was one of the brave few. I don't think this is a really bad loss. I think if it was closer, maybe it would have been more to talk about, but again, it happens. And I don't think any of us really did see this one coming. In the words of Mikel Arteta, the former Arsenal manager, I don't know if he's still there. If I say what I really think, I will be suspended six months. So I'm going to keep my mouth shut on 
on my voting. But I think the biggest thing for me from this GW game, and Daniel, I think you'll agree, is, yes, Garrett Johnson, Darren Buchanan, and the true freshmen, they're good, but there are going to be games like this because Garrett Johnson, and he's we're, we're happy he's overcome his, his cancer, he, he's going to have games like this. He's going to look like a freshman. Darren Buchanan, he played a great game, but he's going to have games where he looked like a freshman because they haven't played in a year. So those There's going to be games like that. And for James Bishop, there's always one game you know, all these great scorers will have where they're just not at their best. James Bishop will have those, but he see, excuse me, he seems to have them at the worst possible time. And that that's a common theme with him. And that's something GW can't afford. He kind of ran out of gas last year at eight tens against St. Joe's against Fordham. Cause I know that I did this game or that game. I should say he ran out of gas completely in the second half and was, was basically bullied by, by Fordham's defense. There's going to be, he's going to have games like that. And they always seem to come for him at the worst possible time. So my concern is yes, I think GW I still still think they're legit. I still think this is a good roster. I know that the schedule is is like Fordham levels of what of they had last year in the out of conference schedule. It's just kind of like a joke in a way. Um, that being said, I do think that there is enough talent and there is experience, if you want to call it that, between Antoine Smith, Stretch Akinbola, who really is just going to have to stand in front of the rim, and that's probably all you really need out of the guy. And then you have your two main scores, which are Edwards and and James Bishop. And I think that this GW team for Chris Caputo is really good, but they can be very feast or famine. And that's a problem that they're going to run into. And that's something that they're going to have to address by the time we get to New Year's, because that's when a 10 play starts. And that's when we're really going to find out about some of these teams. So let's wrap it up real fast on the men's side. There's there's one game, and I, I I am I am a little selfish that I'm going to do this to you guys, but I that I do want to address on Sunday coming into the Bronx is Tulane to take on the Fordham Rams in a completion of the home and home series that started a year ago down in New Orleans. The Fordham, as we know, or at least I have done deciding to put them atop of my preseason power rankings like an absolute psychopath because that's what I do. That's my brand. I have to stick to it. But they're going to be playing this, this two-lane team that is that is tops in the NCAA in pace. They're a top 10 team in pace. This is one of the best offensive teams in the country. So I want to just go around the, the table here real fast and we'll lead off with, with KG. What we think this what this what could come out of this game for Fordham and if they do pick it up overall implications for the rest of the Atlantic 10 picking up another top 100 win if you will picking up this win could could give some hope of an at-large bid but I think we've kind of seen all hopes of really some at-large bids happening kind of just by based off of seeing some of the games for Dayton and even for um, VCU, just kind of having been like VCU's on a down year uh, for sure. Bonaventure has been okay. Like they 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 haven't been fully consistent yet. Uh, Fordham's 
got to work to get a little more consist consistent. But um, what's really been surprising me just overall in the arcing A10 is really the DMV area uh, with both George Mason and GW, um, both with their decently hot, very hot starts. Um, George Mason being five and one currently, I believe. Oh, six and one. I apologize. Thank you, Daniel. Um, but being six and one in a year one um, of a coaching change as well. So considering they're doing that well, just with a new head coach compared, not trying to be like rude, but comparing it to VCU, who's got a year one coach with the program, you can see there's vastly different things that have happened. But that also means that like Tony Skin was able to bring in better players uh, to George Mason than Ryan Odom had initially brought in for VCU especially since there's certain players that have to sit out for him because of waiver eligibilities and also injuries. So just want to mention like credit to both the DMV teams. Uh, they've done awesome and phenomenal, but I don't think we really have a chance of an at-large bid this year. Like I think we're going to be a one bid league. Unfortunately, I, I hate to say that on the men's side, but unfortunately Dayton kind of shot it, shot themselves in the foot with the loss to Northwestern a little bit, but then like a, a decently close game against um Houston, but it, it was a little bit of a rougher one just be based off of it it got away from them. They couldn't keep it like within single digits. But going back to your actual question, Thomas, if Fordham can somehow pull this off, I will be impressed. Um I, I just don't know what to really interpret from it just based off of not knowing what Tulane's record is or having a chance to look that up. But I it's a 50-50 shot. That's what I'm going to say. It's a flip of a coin. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm just not um, – I don't really know if I'm sold on Fordham yet. I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to say my ranking on Fordham because I'm sure Thomas might not be super happy with that one. If you say what you think, you'll probably get suspended six months too. Yeah, you're, that's that exactly mind. right. So I'll keep, my, I'll keep my money where my mouth is and not say anything. But uh, look, I mean, Tulane, Thomas, as you mentioned, they're really playing with a lot of offensive pace. They're really – I mean, they are the number one two-point shooting team in the country right now, 65.9%, insane numbers, and 53% overall shooting. That's top three in the country. I don't know, man. Like, I think the American could be a two-bid league this year, maybe even three, because there are a lot of really good teams there. Florida Atlantic looks pretty good. Wichita State, 7-1. and one. If Tulane keeps up this offensive pressure and they do really well in conference play and they don't win, I think they could really be one of those teams that uh, the committee could consider putting in the field of 64, but I'm just, I'm not, I'm not that sold that sold on Fordham yet. I think they are just, they're having a slow start. And if they are somehow able to pull this one off against a really hot two lane team, I, I don't know. I'd probably have to do some kind of insane challenge or, you know, take my money out of my mouth and maybe, maybe change where I put Fordham in the, in the next week's power rankings. But for right now, I think two lanes got it. Sorry, Thomas. Hate to break your heart, but uh, yeah, Fordham's not really uh, doing it for me right now. Yeah, admittedly, I am uh, not. I haven't paid too much attention to the men's Sunday slate um, for reasons that will become obvious here in a few minutes when we talk about the women's basketball slate. Um, I mean, I, I think it's never a bad thing to pick up a, a, you know, a quad one win for anybody in the league. Um, if, if nothing else, it. it gives a slightest statistical boost to whoever's still possibly chasing that large bid. I don't think the door is completely shut on Dayton yet. They still have games against UNLV and Cincinnati on their schedule. Um, I, I think there very much still is a path for the Flyers that they can figure the life out. 
um, and just avoid some landmines. But um, no, nah, I mean, I, I think this would be a great win for the Rams if they can get it. I think last year surprised a lot of people. Um, and I think it kind of is up to this year's team to show that that wasn't just a flash in the pan. Um, and a slow start to the season is excusable. You, there's, you can make reasons why that they, they had the slow start. But ultimately, and, and I'm not saying that this is their make or break game, because that's not at all what I'm saying. But I think it's up to this Fordham team in the long run to show that last year was not just a flash in the pan. Um, and I think winning this game would be, go a long way towards that argument. I will I will say this quickly and then we will move on to the women's side. Here is who Tulane has played in their their six games. So they're five and one. Prairie View AM, California, they lost to Radley, Sacramento State, Northwestern State, Nichols State. Do any of those teams scream competition to either of you? I mean, Cal's going through a rebuild this year, I believe, but a three-point loss to Bradley, and Bradley's probably doing like really well this year too. Mm-hmm. I will just say, like a three-point loss is actually not that bad. Like, yeah, I'll admit for them, that that's one, not bad. That's not bad. Like, I'll I'll admit the rest of them are kind of just like hate like the wins that have been kind of handed to them. But like again, too, I don't I haven't heard of half of these teams, so I couldn't tell you whether they're D. Like, I think a few Nichols I know is D one. But I think Northwestern State is maybe D two, but I I could be completely wrong on this. But yeah, I mean it's gonna be in, like this weekend slate is just crazy for the A ten on both sides. Yeah. That's the best way of putting it because it's for chaos. the men's to wrap up the men's side on that the Saturday. So we have that's tomorrow as a recording of this podcast. St. Joe's is going to be playing Temple in the Big Five Championship game, and then we have Rhode Island versus Providence. Kim English facing. His old conference, he's going to be facing off against Archie Miller. I wonder, Go, Rody. I, I wonder Rody, what mindset Rody. what mindset is Kim English going to come out with? I don't give a damn. <laughs> Dan, Daniel Frank, very salty about, about losing Kim English, as you guys can tell. But let's flip it over to the women's side. Now, the big story here on the women's side, and we'll kick this off. Five teams have six wins, and then George Mason is 7-0. and oh. This Atlantic 10 on the women's side is very much loaded. And none of those six teams are, there's no team in that top six that is, Rhode Island's not in it. They're not in that top six. And you can say what you want about how they've started the season and Tammy Reese, and there have been some changes to the team, but that, that top six last year, we wouldn't be saying that either any of those teams, maybe except for Joe's, would be there, but yet here we are in 2023, soon to be 2024. The A10 on the women's side, it's almost as if it's completely flipped, I guess, inside out a little bit. Well, KG, we'll lead off with you on this one. What are your thoughts on the early slate or the early stages here of the women's standings? So, lost tonight for me personally. Um, just watched the UMass Yale game, um, kind of is why we started a little late besides having to watch our lovely George um, Washington and VCU teams as well on the men's side. We did have three games going on the women's side as well. All the A-10 teams lost, unfortunately, um, tonight. Um, but I feel like the one out of everyone who had a chance, I mean, Dayton did have a slight chance against Purdue. Daniel, I want you to hop in too, because you probably know more than I do for a lot of these teams, but 
I will just say UMass having a tough loss to Yale, who had just won their first game of the season on Tuesday against Marist. May I just point that out? UMass has not won a game since their home opener against St. Peter's on November 6th. We're almost in a month straight of it. So eight straight losing, eight straight lost. Um, But honestly, out of all their losses, there's two losses that could have been wins. Is it a little rough for UMass fans right now? Yes. But this rebuild is going to be a little harder than some of your other typical rebuilds that you will see within an A-10 program. Like, this is basically exactly what happened to Dayton Women's last year with what we saw, unfortunately. But honestly, UMass was only, like, up until tonight, they were only playing with seven or eight healthy players because of so many preseason injuries and everything. So they finally got Chineye Odenigbo to make her collegiate debut for UMass. She brought 15 minutes off the bench, scoring six points. So career high, obviously, just based off of it being her first collegiate game. But just to mention that the six foot five forward is finally available for UMass, and they're starting to finally see their bench start to be healthy. We could be seeing players like Alexia Rose, um, Avery Childers, and Mackenzie Jones all start to return to play as well for UMass and finally get that depth that they much need because I'm sorry, but they looked tired a little bit today, but also too, like they did this like in the bus trip down and one, like they did down and back in one day. So they didn't even stay over or anything, but it's a rebuilding process for UMass. UMass fans stay hopeful. I will just say this while yes, it's a rebuild right now. It will get better at some point. Coach LaFleur does have a great mindset to how he can help this team really develop and get better. It's just it's going to take some time, and we have UMass has one more road game before they even go off into like the rest the rest of their non conference slate, which are all at home. So it's just been almost a month a month on the road for the most part. So, but that's a huge difference from what we were seeing last year. Is UMass is not up in that top contenders, but Rhode Island with three losses. Daniel, you want to talk about this one a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I like my good friend Natalie Heifern is probably the most qualified person in the world to talk about Rhode Island. Unfortunately, she's not here tonight, but mm-hmm. um, I think Rhode Island of all the 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 surprises in the A ten, I think is truly the biggest surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say they have not shown brilliant flashes. They went on the road and darn near beat NC State the like week after NC State beat UConn. So not to say that Rhode Island has not competed at a high level at times this season, but then they've also turned around and had some really bizarre losses. The loss to Quinnipiac immediately comes to mind. They also lost to Maine earlier this year. Um, NC State's that third loss, obviously. Not at all what we expected from this roadie team. I know Timmy Reese had explicitly said the goal of this season was to get an at-large bid to the NCAA tournament. I think at this point, that door is shut. Um and that is a a massive surprise. Um, and, and St. Louis also, I think, was the preseason also possibility for an at large, you know, contention. Um, and SLU is four and four with, I mean, they don't have like truly any like abysmal losses, but they haven't really like they've they've not impressed in really any significant way, and they returned. A, a significant part of that championship roster from a year ago. Obviously, there were some some significant departures. You had Brick Flowers graduating, obviously, but 
I, this is not the St. Louis team that we expected. Um, I am going to take my moment here in the sun because I absolutely have every right to do so. Um, longtime listeners of the show, this is, I think, the fourth season of the A10 Talk podcast. Um, this is my ninth year at A10 Talk. I've been following the A10 for 25 seasons now. Um, George Mason women's basketball has been not good for basically the duration of my lifetime. Um, I, I admittedly did not follow the program too much growing up. I was very much, and still am the, a, a GW fan. Um, but as someone who went to George Mason and suffered through some truly not good seasons, um, the final year of Nyla Millicent, George Mason won three games the whole season. And they did not win a single conference game. Um, and that was what the 2020, 21 season. Um, yeah. and we are three years removed from that now. Um, and George Mason has gone from a team that won three games in a season to a team that is off to the best start in school history. They are 7-0 and with a arguably the biggest game in school history coming up this Sunday at Maryland. Um, I, I don't think the, we're not going to put the Patriots in an at-large conversation yet. I'm pumping the brakes on that. Um, but, I mean... This is far and above anything that I had expectations for this season. I love Vanessa Blair Lewis. I love the group of girls that she has this season. I love everything that they're doing. But this is by every stretch of the imagination so far ahead of schedule right now. Um, To be winning games, I was at um, the American. I've been to a bunch of the games, obviously. But the the road game at American is truly what sticks out to me the most. Um, I have seen time and again, Mason, especially in road games, have a slow start kind of, you know, they're struggling to score the ball and that just kind of becomes the story of the game. And that was very much the first half of this game at AU. And then the second half Mason found a way to flip a switch in a way that I've never seen a George Mason team do before. Um, And, and scoring the ball, Paula Suarez hitting big threes. I mean, this George Mason team is just different from any George Mason team that we've ever seen. They're in the middle of a six game road trip to rent to, to end out um, non-conference play. So we're going to find out, you know, what this team is truly made of over the next couple of weeks here. Um, But this game at Maryland is, is a big game. Maryland's not ranked. So this may arguably be one of the weaker Maryland teams we've seen recently, but not to say that this game doesn't carry weight for sure for the Patriots. Um, one o'clock start on Big Ten Plus, whatever the hell that is, not the main network. So unfortunately, it's not going to be super watchable. But um, I would, I would, I would recommend a ten fans keep an eye on this one. Um, Rhode Island obviously also has a big game. Rhodey's playing; they're hosting number twenty five Princeton this Sunday as well. Um, so there's a, and then uh, LaSalle's hosting Virginia. Um, so a, a, a nice slate of games here on the women's side this Sunday. A um, couple hey. other teams that we should shout out. Kaylee, I'll hand this over to you if you want to talk about some of the other um, top teams we've had so far in, in the A-10 this season on the women's side. Yeah, so we kind of talked about Mason being up there at the top, but we also do have some other teams, so I do just want to recognize quickly, obviously. Davidson, 6-1 um, and one on the season. Their only loss comes to North Carolina. And North Carolina just hung in very close, almost wire to wire against number one, South Carolina last night, or I should say Thursday night as of this recording. So honestly, that loss isn't looking very bad because they only lost by what, four? 
but then still having two big wins against both Duke and Wake Forest, those are huge things to really mention and like highlight that these are huge, especially since they lost North like Davidson played both Wake Forest and North Carolina in just a 24 hour turnover, basically, not even. So considering the fact that they like only lost by four points to North Carolina when they could have gone in exhausted, that's pretty crazy. Uh, as Daniel had already mentioned, George Mason's undefeated, one of our two only undefeated teams left in the conference. Uh, Mason's got a rough matchup against Maryland. Uh, UMass, I, this is just my relating point into this game. Uh, UMass did play Maryland in the Cancun Challenge. Granted, it is on neutral, like a neutral court, so it really doesn't help compare as much, but UMass lost that game 63-92. I feel that the Patriots will be able to hold into this game a little more than <laughs> UMass was able in that Cancun Challenge game, but I do just want to highlight that Mason does have a chance to really show themselves against like a team that's constantly in the top 25 and has actually fallen out of the top 25 for the first time in 25 years. Uh, but we still have St. Joe's, who's the only other undefeated team here in the A-10. They do have some big games coming up against North Florida. Um, that one isn't like that one's not gonna be as huge as the next two, but they do have both Villanova and um, number 12, Utah, that they will have um, coming up within the next week. So they're playing three games in a week with very small turnover time on this, too. So And the Utes are coming to Hagen as well. Correct. So it, it's not like they're going out to Utah. It's a home game for them. So that is going to be a very, very close. It could be a very close game or it could be a blowout game. We don't know. But St. Joe's did just have a very close game against Temple in overtime. So... That's one thing I wanted to mention, but Richmond. Richmond's 6-2 and two, um, with only losses to Villanova and to Duke. Again, those are perennial teams that are constantly in uh, March Madness on the women's side. But I do just want to mention this. This is my way of connecting, I don't know how, the America East in with our lovely A-10 on the women's side. Um, Maine lost to Fordham last week during Feast Week um, out at the Drinks Thanksgiving Classic. So Maine is currently sitting at two and one against A10 teams, and they'll go up against their fourth A10 team this upcoming weekend, I believe, with Fordham. Um, and then they'll play Duquesne to wrap up their series against all A10 teams. Uh, but I believe Maine just held it close with uh, Indiana up in Maine. So that is going to definitely be a game to watch for Fordham. Like this Maine team is kind of legit, but. I don't know how legit yet. Like it's going to depend because they all their games that they won against A ten teams are on their home court. So, kind of stepping away from my tangent of Maine, uh, VCU is our last team that has six wins. Um, they're six and one. Their only loss um, comes against James Madison, who had a decent season last year. They actually beat last season. They beat St. Joe's uh, last season, but. You can't go ahead and compare last season to this season because you never know. Uh, but one thing I do just want to mention is VCU actually did beat St. John's this year in the Puerto Rico Classic during Feast Week, where former UMass um, Minute uh, Woman player Bernaya Mayo is playing for that team now, and former UMass coach Candace Walker is coaching there. So just one thing I wanted to mention with that, like 
St. John's isn't doing the best. And I know that Rhodey's going to be playing St. John's in the coming weeks. Um, so Rhodey still has a tough schedule coming forward. As Daniel mentioned, the top 25 game against Princeton, that one's going to be either a close one or it could be blowout. I don't even know what to expect anymore. Do you disagree, Daniel? I, I mean, I'd like to think that Tammy's going to have her group ready to go on Sunday. Um, I think this is going to be a, a hungry bunch. But at the same time, I think with with this roadie team at this point, we're not sure what we're going to get on any given night from them. Right. Well, I don't want to go. I just want to quickly wrap up the whole women's debate. I, I apologize. I just wanted to throw in a little shout out to Loyola. I know we haven't really talked about them a ton on this podcast. Thomas, you didn't even mention Loyola plays Harvard tomorrow or Saturday when you know, this this show comes out. We play them on the men's side, doubleheader at the Gentile Arena tomorrow. I think our Loyola women's team just had the biggest win of Allison Guth's tenure. They just beat Northwestern up in Evanston on Wednesday. It's an exciting game, and for a team that hasn't had a lot to be excited about, I think that's a big win. They have three wins already, halfway to last season's win total. I think they're going to win more than one game in the conference this year, guys. Mark my words. And keep in mind, we play number four Iowa in a month. I'm going to say it right now. We want Caitlin Clark. We really do. What, what are you going to win? You're going to win two games in the conference. Hey, two's better than one. Am I right? This this is this is true. But you're trying this to break is... the Kenny Payne record here. My, oh my, man, for some Kenny Payne won a game. <laughs> I don't uh, know why my brain is thinking this right now, Daniel. You can go ahead and yell at me. I don't care. I know we just said Rhode Island has their spurts of having bad games. Right now, all I can imagine is a rivalry game against UMass, and Brody just blows it for some reason. I don't know why I'm imagining It's entirely this, feasible. I it's mean, entirely with, feasible. With the A-10, A-10, anything goes. It's like it's like in the NFL. You say any given Sunday, right? Yeah. That's, that's how the A-10 is. And just to quickly mention Loyola, until it is proven to me that deep dish pizza is good, I will I – will give props to the Ramblers because that whatever, whoever made deep dish pizza, I don't know who thought it was funny. I don't know who thought it would be good. It's not good. I'm sorry. It is, it's not. I mean, I'm not even. Oh, really? Chicago. Wait, I don't, I don't think it's good. I don't think it's good at all. I don't know. who. I you mean, guys are both wrong and I accept that you are wrong. Oh, Daniel. I, it's just, it's, it's as a true Italian. It's not, it's, it's lasagna. It's, like, it's lasagna. It is. You say like, that like uh, it's a bad thing. I don't care what the hell it is. It's good. But it's not I pizza. Try it. I will try. I'll pizza. give you guys a quick story. So I went to Italy this summer. I was oh on a tour gosh. in Positano and I tried to describe to our tour guide what chicken parm was. And she immediately she had a cross on her. She just pulled it out and held it in front of my face <laughs> as if I was some satanic. Yeah, right. Exactly. Baz. Yeah, he does the little um, cross thing. It's as if I was some satanic creature that just rose from hell. That being said, I think that loyal Chicago They've had a rough time adjusting to the A-10 on both sides. I do think both rosters have improved as far as the men's side goes, because that's where I really am critical. People were putting them like sixth in the preseason. I don't know why people did that again. I don't know why they fell for that trap. I kept saying we're not going to fall for this trap again, but people did anyway. I put them 12th. I don't think that they're going to get that much better. It's going to take a while, but that being said, I think Loyola Chicago is the type of A-10 school that this conference could use, and they're in a market that I think this conference really wants to be in. And it's never a bad thing to bring in a big market like Chicago because they do have a rich basketball history, both in their amateur and their professional ranks. But we are going to table 
the discussion that's going to just about wrap it up here for our episode of A10, the A10 Talk podcast. Make sure you guys check us out. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, if that's still a thing. If you stream this somehow, that's not on any of those. Please listen. We do obviously appreciate it. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at 810 Talk. Make sure you follow KG, Daniel, and the Baz Machine on Twitter. You can probably search them up by initials and they'll probably come up because 810 Twitter is its unique own entity. Just about to wrap it up here for Daniel Frank, Kaylee Godek, William Bazone, Thomas Aiello. We're signing off and saying so long. We'll see you guys next time.